Well, friends, I am excited about the year that we're beginning today. I'm excited to see all of you uh, together in the house of God, gathered as a community of redeemed people. I'm excited about next week as we're starting this new sermon series and encourage you to, to be with us as we will seek to understand and learn what it means to live on earth, the kingdom of heaven. But today, it's, this is going to be a standalone sermon. It's, it's a, a sermon for the new year, and I've, I've read somewhere that <clears throat> New Year's Day has a bad reputation because it is a birthday of so many resolutions that die in infancy. Now, I'll be honest with you. I hope that you are making some new resolutions for this year. And unlike other resolutions that are part of our life and we all make in our lives, I do hope and pray that today we would be making some spiritual New Year resolutions. You know what's the difference between regular resolutions that we make in, in our common life and the spiritual resolutions that I hope we would be making today? The difference is the world out there does not have the Holy Spirit to come alongside and assist us in the commitments that we make before the Lord. God delights when His people respond to His Word. And I do hope and pray that today will be a day that we will be making some New Year resolutions. As a matter of fact, the, the subject, the theme that I'll be addressing this morning is, is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 18. It's a whole chapter. It's a, it's a rather long passage. But the theme I'll be addressing today is characteristics of spiritual renewal. Characteristics of spiritual renewal. I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. In the book of Nehemiah, if, you, if you're looking in the, in the Scripture in the Old Testament, it's right before the book of Esther, which is right before the book of Job, which is right before the book of Psalms. Um, so if you get to the Psalms, a pretty big part of the Scripture, uh, just go a few pages prior to Psalms. Nehemiah, chapter 8, from verse 1 to verse 18. Here's the word of the Lord. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Matithia, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadanach, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because 
he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebethai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Yozabad, Hanah, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of the, all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, to, the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade, shade trees and make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their country yards and the courts of the house of God, and the square by the water gate, and, the one by, and one by one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths, and they lived in them. From the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very Great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Let's bow our heads before the Lord and ask Him for His grace, for His Spirit to speak to us. Father, we do not want to take it for granted that you allow us the privilege to open your word, to read it, 
and to explain it in freedom. Father, we thank you for putting us a desire to gather as a church body on this very first day of the year. Lord, we ask for your presence to be with us as we open these scriptures and as we seek to understand them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, the book of Nehemiah is presenting to us the events in the life of Israel right after the Israelites returned from the exile in Babylon. Remember the Exodus? We were in that series for a while. And I have been saying to us, teaching the church, that even though the Exodus happened throughout the years, throughout the centuries, Israel kept disobeying the Lord, and eventually they were exiled. Well, this episode in the life of, of Israel happens right after Israel came back. They were in exile in Babylon for about 70 years, and they've now returned home. And they start building their homes. They start, started rebuilding the temple of the Lord and, and the city of Jerusalem. And one of the men God used to finish the rebuilding, the remodeling of the, of the place that they have found desolate once they came back, one of the men God used to, to rebuild the place was Nehemiah. And for six chapters in this book of, of Nehemiah, we are told how that rebuilding project took place. And, and Nehemiah was led by the Lord and used by the Lord to rebuild the walls of the city around Jerusalem in 52 days. And all of that happened in the first six chapters. And the, the end of chapter six ends with this notion, with this message that the wall was completed. And then from chapter seven to chapter 10, we see a, a phase, a period in the life of Israel where they, where they start doing not just some physical remodeling, but some spiritual remodeling. In chapter seven, as a matter of fact, if we read closely, it's a list of names. It's a list of, of the names of the people who came back from exile. And it's important why Nehemiah gives so much attention to names. Even in our passage in chapter 8, he's describing the people who are next to him reading the law. Why is that important? It was very important because the Israelites, when they got back to the land, they, they realized that some of the people who had stayed in the land, they started mixing with the Gentiles. And clearly, that was a command God had given them not to do. So when, when the Israelites come back from, from exile and they're seeking to rebuild the nation, one of the things that was very important to them was to make sure that they know who the pure Israelites were and who are now mi the mixture. And they slowly had to say no to those who had been mixing with the Gentiles. So it was very important for the Israelites to know who is rebuilding the nation, the remnant well, at the end of, of chapter 7, it's a, a, a list of names, a list of numbers, how many came back. At the end of, of chapter 7, we see this transition that the nation, the people, the Israelites, have finished rebuilding their homes. They have finished rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. But there's something else they haven't done yet. And that is to experience a spiritual renewal. And as we look at, at, at their decision, as we look at what characterizes this next phase in the life of Israel, I would like for us to take some lessons for us as we begin 2012 and see what is it that, that the Israelites experienced after rebuilding, after remodeling their homes, their city. They wanted to remodel their spiritual life. And I want us to learn from them 
as we th- seek about and, and look into 2012, what is it that we could remodel in our own spiritual lives? I'd like to look at three characteristics this morning. The first one, very evident in, cha- in verse 1 in chapter 8, is a renewed desire for the Word of God. A renewed desire for the Word of God. Look at verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. It's interesting. Here's the first thing they do when they finish remodeling everything. When they finished realizing their records and their records were up to date, up with, with some new information, they desired to read and understand the law of God. Now, the desire was not just of some individuals. Notice it was the gathered community. Notice what, what, verse, eight, what verse 1 says. They were gathered, they were assembled as one man. You cannot escape the connection between the gathering of that assembly on that day, on that first day of the seventh month, with this notion of, of a one man, and the picture we see in the New Testament as the church, as being one body. The, the, the community of Israelites were gathered together and were told that everyone, men, women, and everyone who could understand, was present. And the first characteristic of this, of this new desire for the Word of God it was that it was a corporate desire. Notice something very unusual in this passage. It's very unusual for the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it's very unusual for us today as well. Typically, it's usually the pastor or church leaders, whether it's Sunday school teachers or deacons, that are always the ones who are taking initiative and encouraging people to get closer to the Word of God. But in this passage, there's something different. In this passage, we're told that the people took the, the initiative. Notice what verse 1 says again. They told Ezra the scribe. Who's they? The people. The people come to the pastor and say, Pastor, would you start preaching to us? Their desire, their, their renewed commitment for the Word of God, it was a corporate desire. And friends, this was, a, this was not a, a top-down movement. This was a grassroots movement. The common members of Israel gathered together and asked for the Word of God to be read and brought out. Dear friends, this is a desire I have for Parkers Baptist Church, that the entire congregation would have this desire in 2012, not simply the pastor or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers, but we as a church would have this desire for the Word of God. Now, notice their, their corporate attitude was not for some light or short meditation. Look at verse 3. Ezra read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Now, I am not suggesting that we should start our services at 6 a.m. and finish at 12. I am not suggesting that. I know you're happy to hear that. As a matter of fact, Scripture does not tell us how long we should gather. It does not tell us how often we should gather. We do have clear indications that they met at least once a week. But here's what I'm noticing in the last decade in American Christianity. I'm noticing that 
we have a tendency for going for shorter and shorter and shorter services and fewer and fewer and fewer gatherings. And the question I have this morning is not how long do we spend time in church or how often do we meet. That's not the issue. The question I have this morning is, is our attitude toward the public teaching of the Word, whether it's through sermon or Sunday school or other, other gatherings of the church, is our attitude towards these gatherings, public gatherings of the church, something like, I hope the service won't be too long today. Or, I can't wait for this to be over so I can, you know, go and have lunch with my friends and do what I need to do. Dear friends, here's what I'm noticing. Sometimes we bring in our drive-through attitudes when we come to church. Let, me, let it be quick. Go in, go out, pick up what you need for the rest of the week so you can meditate in the car throughout your week, but don't keep us at church too long. Friends, the Israelites took the initiative to hear God's Word, and they were in no rush to get it. And I wonder, are we? Now notice about their desire for the Word. Not only it was a, just a genuine desire, they were, they were willing to be there. It was not just a check-off, okay, I, I did my, my Sunday thing and then move on. Notice verse 3, it says that all the Israelites listened attentively to the book of the law. Now friends, let me remind you, first of all, they did not have the New Testament. It was the book of the law, the book of Moses. That means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Try reading through that and see how exciting it is. Here's how the people, this is the, the hunger of the people. They were, they were all listening attentively. And likewise, the teachers not only read the book of the law, but notice what verse 8 says. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So people were listening attentively, and the teachers read and explained so that the listeners could understand it. Friends, the reason why God gave us the Bible, the reason why God gave us His Word, He revealed to us His, His Word, is so that we may know Him. And there was the expectation, the desire that God has so that His people will desire to read His Word, will desire to meditate on His Word, will desire to understand it. Friends, the notion of being a Christian and not being interested in reading God's Word or listening to God's Word or knowing God's Word is very, very foreign to the notion of being a Christian. Now, I know today we live in a time and age, especially here in the South, especially in Texas, where a lot of people feel comfortable calling themselves Christians. But the first question I would like to ask them is, do you have a desire for this God that you claim to, to follow? Do you have a desire to read the revelation with this, which this God made known to us? Friends, the new chapter in the history of Israel, this new day on the seventh month in the life of Israel, begins with a people who long for the Word of God to be read to them and explained so they could, un so they could understand it. 
it was not just an individual longing of just a few of the leaders or of the spiritual mature. It was a corporate longing, and it was an attentive longing. Friends, I wonder, what is our attitude towards hearing the Word of God? Consider 2011. Consider your heart's attitude in the, in the last year. Was it characterized by carelessness or lightness or even an outright disinterest for the Word of God? If you call yourself a Christian, I, want to ho I hope to, to help you realize that those are very foreign attitudes to being a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, friends, I want to talk to you later in, this, in the sermon about the importance, the meaning of what that is. But friends, I want to address specifically right now just the members of Park Hills Baptist Church. I want to commend you, church members, for being open in 2011 to extend the time of our services from 60 minutes to 75 minutes. I appreciate your desire to allow your pastor to preach 40 to 45 minutes and not simply a 25-minute message. I praise God for the way you have responded to allowing the change of time so that we do have more time to study God's Word, to hear it, and have it explained. And I want to commend you for that. My prayer and hope in 2012 is that we would continue in that desire, that we would not grow tired of it, that when we come to church, it's not just so that we check it off. No, this is it. We don't come to church as a means to a higher end so that we feel good about ourselves. We come to church that we would really meet with God in the gathering of the saints. Yes, we can meet with God and hope we can meet with God when we're alone in our private closets, in our homes, in our cars, in our jobs. But when we meet, when we gather together, we meet with God as a gathered community. And I hope you look forward for that. So I want to commend you for that, for, for this desire that I've seen in 2011, and I hope we could continue in 2012. So the first thing that we notice for the Israelites is their renewed desire for the Word of God. Here's the second thing that we notice in verses 9 through 12 in this chapter. They had a readiness to receive the Word of God. They had a readiness to receive it. Not only a willingness to hear it, but a readiness to receive it. Notice, once the word was read and explained, the leaders of the assembly gave the Israelites a very interesting command. Look at verse 9. This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And then the explanation. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, before we look at this command to rejoice, the command that the priest gave the people, let's look at the mourning and the weeping that was caused by the hearing of God's word. Why were the people weeping? Why were they mourning? Most likely it was because they have been hearing the word of God and realized that they were not practicing it. How do I know that? It's pretty self-evident because if we read the rest of the chapter and then the next two chapters, they're filled with either commitment, new commitments that they're making in light of God's Word, 
or they're filled with prayers of forgiveness and repentance. And this is a second characteristic, dear friends, of, of spiritual renewal that the Israelites were experiencing. Their hearts were ready to accept the word, to repent and to rejoice. Friends, let me ask you this morning, when was the last time that the hearing of God's word caused in us such a contrition of heart that it moved us to tears? Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to be looking for tears. I'm not suggesting that we need to be looking for emotional experiences. And I'm not asking you when was the last time you cried. I realize that some people are more emotional than others. I won't say anything about genders here, uh, but some people are more emotional than others. So I'm not asking about tears, but I am asking about the following. When, when was the last time that when you heard the Word of God and heard something that you haven't done in a while and that the Word commands, the first thing you tried to do was not to exp explain yourself away or try to reinterpret that passage, but you paused and you let the Word of God search your heart and you were willing to grieve and to repent. Do we allow the Word of God to create in us godly sorrow? Or do we constantly tell ourselves that all we have to be is just be very positivistic? Friends, here's what's amazing about the nation of Israel. Just having a desire for the Word of God was the first thing for them. And I want to say this morning, it's not enough if you just have a desire for the Word of God. There are people who may want to read the Bible with the intent of justifying their wrong behavior rather than allow their behavior to be corrected by the Scriptures. Others may have a desire to read the Word of God in order to pose to others that they are more spiritual. If we read in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are a proof that we might approach the Word of God with misguided desires. So the question is not simply do we have a desire for the Word of God, but also I would want to add from this passage, do we have a desire to hear God's Word with a readiness for repentance? Do we have a desire to hear God's Word with a readiness to grieve over our sins and to grieve over our wrongdoings and with an openness to be corrected. And the Israelites prove to have such a tender heart towards God's Word so that when they realized that they have not been following it, they began weeping and mourning. And so much so that in this passage, the only command the, the, the leaders of, of Israel give the nation is, to rejoice, to stop mourning. Three times in this passage, the, the, the leaders of Israel are encouraging or admonishing the people to stop grieving and start rejoicing. Friends, when repentance has done its work in our lives, we should rejoice. These priests are not simply preaching a positivistic and encouraging message. I can so easily see some some people look at this passage and say, see, the, the preacher always in this passage had a positive message. But I want to point back to the text and say, but notice what he has been preaching 
all day long that cause the people to mourn. See, the, the, the priests of the law, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, have been preaching in such a way that it did lead people to weeping and mourning. And when that has done its work, the priests and the teachers of the law find it necessary to comfort people and to lead them to, to rejoicing. Friends, godly sorrow is not a barrier to godly joy but a prerequisite of it. Godly sorrow is not a barrier to godly joy, but a prerequisite to it. I like what, C, what uh, Spurgeon said about, about this theme. He said, When the soul has been saturated with the rain of penitence, the clear shining of forgiving love makes the flowers of glad, gladness blossom all around. The steps by which we ascend to the palace of delight are usually moist with tears. And he finishes and says this, Grief for sin is the porch of the house beautiful where the guests are full of the joy of the Lord. Friends, the people of Israel experienced what Jesus was going to teach much later in the Sermon on the Mount, and we will see this in the next few weeks. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is what the Israelites are, are experiencing right now. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites are comforting the people. They're comforting because they have been mourning all day. And Nehemiah said, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful encouragement at the beginning of this stage of renewal for Israel do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Dear friends, the joy of the Lord is our strength when we allow repentance to do its work in our lives. And second, the joy of, of the Lord is our strength when the Lord is the object of our joy. Notice the reaction of the people in verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink. That, that's what the, 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 the priests have encouraged them. They all went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy. It's like the priests were saying, guys, go and have a potluck after the service. Come on. Amen. But notice why they celebrated with great joy. And I like that phrase, they celebrated with great joy. Notice why. It was not because the service was over. It was not because they finally got to eat. Look again at verse 12. They celebrated with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. See, there's a great difference, dear friends, between expressing our joy by the fact that we eat and drink and have fellowship, and that's sort of like the, the fruit of our joy, there's a difference between that and having the, the eating as a root of our joy. We love when we eat and, 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 and meet up and, and drink and have a good time. That was not exactly what they experienced. The root of joy that the Israelites were was experiencing is the fact that they understood the Word. And the way they showed that joy was by feasting. 
Friends, the joy of the Israelites comes after their mourning and weeping and is based on the fact that they now understood the word of the Lord. That's what it means for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. They were comforted and they were encouraged. But it's only when the Lord is the object of our joy. It's only when the word of the Lord is the object of our joy that we can indeed experience this promise of Scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let me ask you this morning, do our hearts have room for such a joy? Not the joy that we finally go to eat, we finally go to fellowship, but the joy that is caused whenever we understand the Word of God. When was the last time we rejoiced over understanding the meaning of God's Word so that we could really follow it? Friends, let me share with you again. I'm so proud of you. There are some of you here today that are experiencing this joy on a regular basis. I know it because it's evident in the conversations I have with you. The greatest compliment I can get as a pastor is not great sermon. I mean, it, it makes my ego feel good, but that's not the greatest compliment I get or I could get. The greatest joy I have is when I start noticing in your lives that the Spirit of God is working repentance. And usually what happens, and I, I hear it because some of you have come to me and share those thoughts, there's a joy and a hope in having gone through that part of repentance. Friends, that is the greatest joy I, I get from preaching God's Word. When I see the Word leading us through repentance and then to joy, and that joy that God is doing something fresh in our lives. And I encourage you, keep doing that. Allow the Word to do its work in our lives. The goal of my preaching is not to have a great sermon, but it's to see how God's Word transforms our lives and leads us to repentance and joy. Friends, this assembly of the Israelites shows that their hearts were ready to receive the Word with contrition of heart and the joy of understanding the Word. A third characteristic. So we looked at two characteristics of the spiritual renewal. Their desire for the Word, a new desire for the Word of God, then a a readiness to receive the Word of God, but thirdly, a commitment for new habits. A commitment for new habits. Verses 13 to 18. The Israelites realize that there's a lot of things they've, they've, they've heard in the law that they're not doing in their daily walk with God. So in verses 13 to 18, we see one example of them taking immediate action. It was the seventh month. It was the first day of the seventh month. And they read in God's law that they're supposed to celebrate and to have this feast of tents or feast of booths. And what did they do? They send the people away and say, go get branches, all kinds of branches, bring them back, and let's put this into action. It was an immediate decision to start celebrating the feast of booths. As a matter of fact, it was, and they rejoiced over this. Their joy was so huge, it, it's, it, we, we are told that since the days of Joshua, they have not celebrated this feast in this way. Friends, Joshua was the predecessor or the, the follower of Moses. Wow! 
That was centuries of history where the people of Israel have not been living and have not been doing the things that God asked them to do. And there's great joy that they're experiencing because they're now following the Lord. They're putting into practice what the law of God required. And then chapter 9 and 10 uh, tell us of more commitments they made. In chapter 9, they have decided to have a time of fasting and corporate repentance. They also decided to separate themselves from foreign spouses, and that's a subject I cannot explain to you right now. They also decided to confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers. As a matter of fact, a, a beautiful prayer of confession is, is given to us in chapter 9, verse 5 through verse 37. And then finally, chapter 10, there is a binding agreement which the leaders of Israel drafted and they presented to the entire congregation. So all of them agreed to live according to this binding agreement. It's like saying what we have today at Parkers Baptist Church as the, the church covenant. It's an, it's an agreement of what we agreed to live by and, and the summary of, of God's word. Again, I'm not suggesting that we need to look and, and find and, and follow all the details because some of those details no longer apply to us given the fact that we are Christians in the New Testament. God is not asking us to have a feast of, of tents, to go out and, and live in, in a tent for a week. I mean, you may do it if you like to live out in nature, but that's not as a feast that God requires to us. There's a lot of things that are here that may not be one-on-one -on -one correspondence of what we need to do because of Christ. But here's what's the impressing part. It's amazing how specific their list of commitments were. It's impressive to, to realize they were not simply wishing and saying, God, help me be a better Christian next year. Help me be a better person. Help me be more loving. No, there are some clear resolutions that they made. And I want to encourage you this morning. What kind of resolutions would you like to make in 2012? What kind of spiritual resolutions would you like to make in 2012? Friends, the genuineness of our desire for the Word of God, the genuineness of our repentance, and the genuineness of our joy is the transformation of our lives, is the new commitments that we make to the Lord. The ultimate goal of our desire for the Word and of our readiness to receive the Word is that we would do the Word, that we would be willing to change our behavior and our life patterns in order to reflect the Word. Again, Israel's situation was, was specific, and the sins they inherited from their fathers led them to take some very specific commitments. But I wonder this morning, I wonder, are there any commitments that you need to make before the Lord? If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, let me, let me, let me define what I mean by that. You may be here, you may call yourself a Christian, but you have never committed your life to God. You have never experienced a new birth that God gives us. You're not in a personal relationship with God. The most important commitment you can make this morning is to begin a new relationship with God. A new relationship in which God becomes your Savior and Lord. A commitment to give your life to Christ. Dear friends, no other commitment that you can make in this life will be more meaningful and life-changing than this commitment to follow God if you have not done it yet. And if you haven't done it yet, let me encourage you 
here's how, what it means to commit ourselves to God. Here's what it means to experience a new birth. Here's what it means to experience a new life with God. First, acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Acknowledge your rebellion against God, even though you may consider yourself a very good person. Acknowledge that it is only through Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice on the cross, that we can be made right with God, that our good actions cannot make us right with God. Acknowledge our inability, your inability, to impress God with your actions. When you acknowledge that, turn to God in faith and repentance. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, God begins a new life in us. He starts taking His residence in our lives. He starts dwelling in us, and He starts taking control of our lives. Dear friends, religion will not save you. Going to church will not save you. Trying to be a good person will not save you. The only way we can experience God's salvation is if we allow Christ to pay the penalty of our sins. It is only because of His penalty, because of His sacrifice, that we can be considered right with God. And as Luther said, the sweet exchange in the sacrifice of Christ, God takes upon Himself our penalty for our sin, and He gives us instead His righteousness, His perfection, so that we may be considered right with God. Friends, if you'd like to know more about what it means to begin this new life with God, to make this commitment with God, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But there's no greater commitment that you can make today than commit yourself, surrender your life to God in repentance and faith, and He will give you a new life with Him. But if you are here this morning, and you are a Christian who has experienced a new birth, you have given your life to Christ, you have surrendered your rights and declared that God is now Lord of your life and Savior of your life, I wonder this morning, I wonder if there are any of us, and in our hearts, we experience some things that we have been hiding for a while. We have been explaining away for a while. You know they're not right. You know that in light of God's Word, you ought to change them. But for one reason or another, you keep explaining it away. Are there things in your life which you need to bring up as a new commitment to God? It might be in the way you treat your spouse. It might be in the way you treat your job. It might be in the way you spend your money. It might be in the way you treat the Word of God. It might be in the way you treat the church of God. It might be in the way you treat your enemies. It might be in the way you treat people of other ages. I don't know what it might be, but I'm wondering, are there any things in your life that as you reflect back in 2011 and, and look forward to 2012, you have been battling with God over an issue and you have not surrendered it to Him? Make this day a day of commitment. And if you're here this morning and you realize, gosh, I just can't think of any, then ask God to open your eyes to see what is it that you need to change. All of us have something to change in our lives. All of us have. Now let me talk to the members of Park Hills Baptist Church for a few moments. I'd like to present to you some commitments for us as a congregation. There are some commitments I'd like to present to you. And these commitments are actually in a little blue pamphlet 
in your chair in front of you. Every one of you should be able to pick one, and I encourage you to open it up. And here are four commitments I would like to give our congregation in 2012. I'd like to encourage us to read through the Bible in one year. Now, I don't mean to read like throughout the Bible, you know, here and there. I mean, read through it in one year. You say, why, do, why would we want to do that? First of all, let me say this. This is not a kind of commitment. The, the goal is not just to read it so you can check off the box. And by the way, there's some nice boxes on this pamphlet. There's a lot of them. But no, ask the Lord to grow your attitude toward the Word of God. Let me give you a caution. The aim of reading the Bible in a year is not that you can say that you've read it. The aim of reading the Bible is not reading the Bible. The aim of reading the Bible is our transformation into the image of Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. So we want to encourage you. I want to challenge our church to make a commitment to read through the Bible. It, it starts today. It's a great this plan is a great plan. It's, it goes to different genres of the Bible. So every day of the week, you go through a particular genre, a particular type of, of, of Scripture. Like Sundays, you would be going through the epistles. Mondays, you would be going through the law. Tuesdays, you would be going through the history books. Wednesdays, through the Psalms. Thursdays, through the poetry. Friday, through prophecy. And Saturday, through the Gospels. So I encourage you to think through. It's a, a new way of reading through the Bible in one year. And I encourage you to take this challenge. A second commitment I want to present to you is to memorize a few verses of Scripture in 2012. You say, why should we memorize Scripture? Well, I like that what David says in Psalm, Psalm 119:11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And specifically, I'm encouraging you to memorize the prayers of Paul so that when we pray for one another, we would know how to pray the prayers of Scripture for each other. And the list of the prayers of Paul are right there on the, on the bullet number two. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. And the third commitment I want to give you, and this is probably the most foreign commitment, that if the first two were not unusual, the third one will be a little foreign. I want to challenge us to commit to engage in one-on-one -on -one discipling relationships. That means sharing the gospel with people one-on-one, -on -one, and that also means discipling other believers one-on-one. -on -one. It's very easy for us to engage in what's, what I call crowd disciple-making, and there's a place for that. But I want every believer, every member of this church to start feeling ready, equipped, knowing, knowledgeable of how is it, how can I make a disciple of my neighbor, of my friend? How can I help them grow as disciples? And of course, this is God's plan. It's not. We can't control that. But I want every member of Particles Baptist Church to feel equipped and to feel that they know what it takes to share the gospel one-on-one -on -one with other folks and to do one-on-one -on -one, uh, discipleship. If you are really skeptical about this and like, wow, I'm so not ready for this, friends, in, on January 8th, uh, 15th, we're starting two seminars that will equip you on these very two aspects. One will be on evangelism, and the other one will be how to do one-on-one -on -one discipling with other believers. Encourage you to sign up for them. They will be offered in the Sunday school hour, and we will be offering these a few times throughout the year because we want every member of Parkless Baptist Church to feel adequate 
to do one-on-one discipling. And the fourth commitment that I'd like to present to you is that we would pray for one another. That we would pray for one another on a regular basis. Now, I don't mean simply, Lord, bless the members of Park Hills Baptist Church. I mean one by one, name by name. And the reason why we want to do that is so that we pray specifically for each other, not only in the times of crisis, and we've done that very well, but I want us to, to be a kind of community that we commit to pray for the spiritual good of one another. And in this brochure, you have here the list of all the names of people who are active members, who are members of our congregation. And I encourage you, if you just take one name per day, there's about 100 names, 100 plus names, you can go through this list in one quarter. I encourage you, I hope that you would go through this list four times this year. But I want to commit and challenge you to pray for one another. And if you don't know what to pray for them, start with the prayers of Paul. Pray the things that Paul prayed for his believers. Pray those for every person on this list. And that, that gives you a reason. When you see people in the hallway on Sundays or on Wednesday nights or any other day, ask them, Dick, what can I pray for you? I've been praying for you this week. See, when we commit to pray for one another, it gives us reasons to ask each other how we're doing spiritually, what is going on in our lives, what needs we might experience. Friends, these are four commitments. There's nothing. God doesn't command us in a, in a, on a black and white to do these things, but these are things that we see Christians in the Old, in the Old Testament and New Testament doing. They were interested in the words of God. They were interested to memorize the word of God. They were interested to making disciples they were interested to praying for one another. And because we see that so clear in Scripture, I want to encourage Park Hills Baptist Church to make these commitments for 2012. I know we're over, and I thank you that you haven't left. It shows that you have a desire for the Word of God. But let me remind you, I know New Year resolutions, many of them don't have a long life. But I'm presenting these to you in the power of the Spirit relying on the Holy Spirit to help us change our behavior, transform our lives, and celebrate and rejoice over the things that God does in our lives. Let's end in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us hope. We thank you for your word that tells us about who you are. We thank you that your word is like a mirror in which we see ourselves as we truly are. Lord, we pray with James that we would not be like folks who look at the mirror and then go away and they forget who they are. Father, I pray that your word in 2012 will do the, the work of, of screening us, of searching us and transforming us. Father, we rely on the Holy Spirit to do these commitments, and we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are committed to you, to your word, and to one another. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to start the new year.